Welcome to Season 6 of the Farm Trainer Podcast, Episode 15, published on December 12th, 2022. We are part of the ConcealedCarry.com Network of Podcast. This episode, we'll be talking with Alex Uli about what the National Firearm Act is and is not. A lot of you have been helping us out by giving us five-star reviews and really appreciate that. We're now in the top 2% of podcasts worldwide, according to Listen Notes. So if you've given us five stars, thank you. But we also want to ask you a favor. Send us to a friend. Send us to somebody else who might need our information, who can use it to build their training business. Everything we do is there to support trainers, and we want to get that information out to as many people as possible. So sit back and relax for another episode of the Firearm Trainer Podcast. In this episode, brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearm Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. All certified instructors can apply for FTA coverage. And remember, for listening to this podcast, you can get 10% off in your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by the LSR Classic Trainer. I use the LSR Classic system in my classroom because it allows me to teach first-time gun owners proper side alignment, proper drawing from a holster, and trigger control without stepping on the range, saving me time and the student money by not firing rounds down range. When the student is ready, they know what to do because of the classroom training. LSR Classic is easy to set up and tear down because all you need is a laptop with a webcam to use it. That allows you to set up anywhere you can take your laptop. The application also works with any laser device from laser cartridges you put in your firearm to laser trainers. LESR is veteran-owned and operated. Find out more information at LESRapp.com and receive a special 10% discount by using discount code FTP10 at checkout. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy in making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Alex Uli from the Forge of Freedom podcast. Welcome, Alex, and thank you for taking time to share your knowledge with our listeners. Uh, great to be here, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, Alex, since the last time you've been on, um, you've created the Forge of Freedom uh, podcast. Can you give our listeners a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, absolutely. So I started the Forge of Freedom earlier this year uh, in January, and we have 80 episodes out uh, as of a couple of weeks ago. And the Forge of Freedom, as many of my listeners already know, but for for your listeners, uh, the Forge of Freedom is really an outlet to talk about firearms, but also freedom more broadly, because obviously I care deeply about the right to keep and bear arms and and the Second Amendment. And I think that our right to keep and bear arms is essential to the preservation of liberty. But but I care about freedom and liberty more more broadly. So I talk about other topics. in addition to firearms, I talk about uh, things related to freedom in, in lots of ways, whether that's uh, you know criminal justice or policing or, or drugs or the court system, et cetera, lots of different aspects to freedom, uh, philosophy, history, et cetera. So if that's something that, that people are interested in, they can find the Forge of Freedom on, on YouTube, Rumble, Facebook, and by podcast. It's worth uh, taking a look at. I know I've listened to many, many episodes and uh, enjoy listening to all those topics. I appreciate that, Rob. Yeah. Well, hey, I know um, one of the topics you you talked about a little bit on your podcast, which uh, I kind of stole the topic and want to expand on, is what is the National Firearms Act? Now, we 
we hear a lot of different things, uh, especially today with the pistol braces and with the bump stocks and different things along those lines to where the ATF has reclassified certain things as being under the NFA or not under the NFA. But I don't know if a lot of people understand what the NFA is and what it isn't at the same time. Um, and I thought you'd be a perfect person with uh, your legal background and also with what you've talked about on Forge of Freedom to go along and, and talk about it with, with our listeners. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. And this is a topic that I discussed uh, with my father. Uh, those of you who don't know, Mike Uli, he's also an attorney and a firearms instructor. And uh, we talked, I don't remember which episode it was, but we talked about this a little bit on the Forge of Freedom. Uh, but I'm always happy to talk about this because I think it's, a, it's an important topic. I think it's one that people don't quite understand, like you said, Rob, that people hear a lot about, but just seems sort of vague in most people's minds, I think. And I, I think a lot of people think about, oh, it's a it's a $200 tax that you got to pay to own certain types of items, but that's about all they know. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's helpful to understand the background uh, and really to understand the absurdity of it. Uh, because frankly, in light of the current Supreme Court jurisp- jurisprudence, uh, in light of Bruin, which I'm s- sure most of your listeners have heard about, which is the Supreme Court case from June 2022, frankly, I think that the NFA should be abolished uh, based on that decision. I'm not confident that it will be, but but hopefully it will. Uh, nevertheless, the NFA is really the first form of federal gun control that was ever enacted in the United States. And I think it's important for people to understand that at the time of the founding, right, there was this debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists wanted a wanted to adopt the Constitution, which was a more uh, strong, centralized form of government than was formed under the Articles of Confederation. The Anti-Federalists did not want that. They thought, hey, we just fought a revolution against a very strong, centralized form of government, and we're afraid that we're going to go right back to where we came from if we adopt a constitution that gives the federal government more authority. So what they did is they came up with this compromise. And the compromise was the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights was the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution, which, as we all know, includes the Second Amendment, which protects the right to keep and bear arms. It does not provide us with the right to keep and bear arms. It simply protects a pre-existing right. And those first 10 amendments were meant to restrain federal government actors, not state governments. So really, the first 10 amendments was only meant to, from the time of the founding, protect people from actions by the federal government and the federal government alone. And it was never really thought that the federal government had any power to regulate firearms uh, from the beginning, because remember, we had a, a constitution that had specific enumerated powers that were granted to the federal government. And nowhere in those specific enumerated powers were there was there any provision about regulating firearms or the right to keep and bear arms. And then on top of that, we had the Bill of Rights that said, not only is it not in the specific enumerated powers, but here we are specifically saying the federal government, you shall not infringe on this pre-existing liberty. So I think that's helpful just for some context here. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much remained the case for quite some time. The federal government and basically nobody thought that the federal government had the ability or the power to 
regulate the right to keep and bear arms. And that remained the case until 1934 with the adoption of the National Firearms Act. And the National Firearms Act was adopted on the heels of prohibition. There was a conflict in Chicago between rival gangs, one uh, that was led by Bugs Moran, who led the Northside Irish Gang in Chicago, and the other led by Al Capone. And they were rival gangs primarily with respect to the uh, dealing of and sale of alcohol during Prohibition. And they got into a shootout in February of 1929, which became known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And that St. Valentine's Day Massacre, they used Thompson submachine guns, which were automatic rifles, automatic firearms, which I should go ahead and define, are firearms that fire more than one shot with a single pull of the trigger. So a single action uh, or a semi-automatic firearm only fires one shot with each press of the trigger, with each function of the trigger. An automatic fires more than one shot with each function of the trigger. So these Thompson submachine guns were used, and there was a call to regulate these types of arms. Well, knowing that the federal government didn't really have any power under the Constitution to regulate firearms, what did they decide to do? They decided to pass a tax because they did have the power to tax. So the 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 way they were going to do this was to impose an exorbitant tax on these types of items. And not only was it uh, machine guns, it was short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, suppressors, and kind of a catch-all category called any other weapons. And we can talk more about what each of those means here in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But... So what they did was they imposed a $200 tax on these items. And that $200 tax was actually based on the price of a Thompson submachine gun, which was about $200 at the time. So it was double the price of a a Thompson submachine gun. So it'd be $200 for the Thompson submachine gun and then an additional $200 for the tax. And inflation adjusted, that would be about $4,500 today. So that was a huge investment to your, lawfully For your average own. citizen, yeah. Right, exactly. For a gangster, it was no problem. And of course, mm-hmm. we all know they weren't going to pay the tax, and they were the only ones who could really afford to obtain these sorts of items. So it had no effect whatsoever on whether or not Bugs Moran or Al Capone could obtain these sorts of things, but it did have an effect on whether uh, the regular person, the everyday Joe, could acquire one of these items. So that was really the first form of federal gun control was this tax, this $200 tax that was imposed by the National Firearms Act of 1934. And there was a case, uh, United States versus Miller, that challenged the constitutionality of the National Firearms Act of 1934. And that case went to the Supreme Court in 1939. And the Supreme Court, it was interesting, uh, the plaintiff, uh, Miller, was apparently shot and killed uh, shortly before his case 
was heard by the Supreme Court. So there really wasn't much of a case presented before the Supreme Court. Uh, and the Supreme Court issued this sort of vague opinion that upheld the constitutionality of the National Firearms Act of 1934. And that decision has been used by gun rights opponents and by gun control, or sorry, gun rights uh, proponents and gun control proponents uh, since 1939 to support both sides of the equation. One side that says the the fire the right to keep and bear arms is some collective right. You have to be part of a militia. There is no individual right. And the other side saying no, it's an individual right. The militia clause is just a prefatory clause. It doesn't limit the individual right in any way whatsoever. So we had this vague uh, landscape in the courts about the constitutionality of the National Firearms Act and what the Second Amendment really protected. Um, I'll leave it there for just a moment. Uh, Rob, if you have some questions, I'm I'm kind of going on and on here, I, and I can keep going, but uh, I'm going to open it up in case you've got some questions or comments. Yeah, one thing I think, um, you know, would be good for listeners to realize is prior to this National Firearms Act, anybody could go out and buy, modify, make whatever kind of firearm they wanted to because it was America is basically what it came down to. And it was, it was only after the gangsters, you know, had the St. Valentine's day massacre that, you know, politicians started getting into, into going along and saying, how can we limit this? And the one thing that is so crazy sometimes when it comes to any kind of gun control is gun control impacts the honest law abiding people. It never impacts the criminals because criminals by definition don't follow the law. And that makes it that much more frustrating when they go along and want to do those kind of uh, actions, because we all know that, you know, the gangsters aren't going to go along and, you know, show up for the gun turn, turn in to turn in all their guns because they now want to become law abiding citizens. It's going to be the law abiding citizens that are the ones that are get caught up in the, in the law. Um, one of, one of the things that I think would be really good to, for us to kind of jump into and define is what are the, what are the different uh, classes of firearms that the NFA created? Because prior to this, you had firearms. You didn't really have, um, didn't didn't have all the c uh, categories for it. Uh, you know, a short barrel rifle, short barrel shotguns, um, pistols, those types of things. And that's one of the things for people to realize too. I mean, prior to this, it was you just had a gun. Period. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a, that's a great point uh, that. You know, you just people just had firearms and basically it was understood that anything that constituted a bearable arm uh, was an arm that could be possessed by any uh, any citizen. And that meant to keep arms means you can have them for your your own defense in your home and to bear them means you can carry them. Uh, and so if you can uh, bear an arm, it was an arm that was protected by the Second Amendment. And it, like you said, that remained the case until uh, this National Firearms Act of 1934, which carved out these various types of items uh, that were subject to this tax. And the other point I want to make before we get into the, the types of items that are subject to the tax 
is your point about you know the, the government wants to step in and and do something, and all they're really doing is limiting the ability of everyday, ordinary, law-abiding people to protect themselves. Uh, they're not impacting the behavior of the criminal. And I think it's important, too, for people to keep in mind the context and remember in which this this National Firearms Act was adopted. This was on the heels of prohibition. And so uh, the government had outlawed, uh, obviously, the uh, alcohol. And uh, you, there are these gangs that spawned uh, and black markets that spawned with respect to the trade of alcohol. So clearly... They couldn't stomp out alcohol uh, who was dealing in alcohol. It was the criminals, right? And so the government created this problem. They created these, this black market. They created these gangs by outlawing alcohol. And now they're going to try to come in and fix the problem they created by creating more problems and punishing good law-abiding people uh, on the heels of the problems they created, which is how the government, unfortunately, operates most of the time. So I think there are lots of parallels you can draw with uh, this situation to, to current circumstances, especially around the, the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a, another topic for, for another day. Um, so with that said, uh, what are the items that are included within the National Firearms Act of 1934? First of all, as we talked about, machine guns. So like I said, it's any weapon which shoots is designed to shoot or can be readily restored to shoot automatically more than one shot without manually reloading by a single function of the trigger. So that's the distinction between a, a machine gun and automatic firearm and a semi-automatic is that it will shoot more than one shot with a single function of the trigger. Now, some people think it's unlawful to possess these at all. Uh, that's not true. Um, it's just that you couldn't, uh, after 1986, that's when there was a, basically a, a pause on this. So you couldn't, you couldn't purchase a new one made after 1986, which is why there's a, a artificial supply limitation on these and why they're so expensive. Um, so you can still possess machine guns, but you have to pay the tax and unfortunately they cost oftentimes tens of thousands of dollars because they're in such limited supply. Uh, the other items are short belt rifles, often referred to as SBRs, which is a firearm with a buttstock. And that's obviously, as many of your listeners I'm sure know, something that's being litigated about whether these stabilizing braces constitute a stock or turn a what would otherwise be a pistol into a short-barreled rifle. Um, but a short-barreled rifle is a firearm with a buttstock and either and a uh, rifled barrel less than 16 inches long or an overall length under 26 inches. Now, it's always baffled me. Why is it safe to have a handgun and safe to have a rifle that's longer than 26 inches, 26 inches but something in, in between is somehow nefarious and dangerous and we have to pay a tax on it uh, that's mm -hmm. never made any sense to me um, but there again a lot of what the government do does doesn't make any sense to me uh, so short barrel rifle uh, less than 16 inch barrel length or an overall length less than 26 inches 
Yep. And that's where, you know, some of the, some of the things that trip up honest people are with, you know, if you, on a short barrel rifle, you can have vertical forearm, vertical foregrip. But if you put a vertical foregrip on a pistol, all of a sudden makes it illegal. Shoots the same as it did before, but all of a sudden makes it illegal. Same thing if you go long shoulder a pistol, that, you know, that's, that's, let's look to as uh, illegal too, which again, it fires all the same. The triggers all the same. It's just these little nuances where, quite honestly, honest people get tripped up because it's like, how does that make sense? It doesn't. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And the case that I, th- I think is the best case to follow probably on this issue is the the Mock v. Garland case, which is the case out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals challenging the ATF final rule that basically turns pistols into short belt rifles. Uh, luckily, there's an injunction on the ATF final rule, but uh, that's a case that if people want to follow the status of that that final rule promulgated by the ATF, uh, that's probably the best case. To, there are others, but that's probably the best case to follow. Mm-hmm. And and the one thing to um, highlight in that in that case also. Keep in mind, it was 2015. The ATF said it was okay to have a pistol brace. It was completely legal. And then in 20, uh, you know, uh, 22, they came out and said, no, it's not legal to have it anymore. And there are, you know, what do you do from a citizen standpoint if you spent money, purchased something, and all of a sudden the government changed their mind that yesterday it was legal and today it's not legal? Uh, legal and it basically made you a criminal because one of one of the challenges with the nfa is not all states allow you to have nfa items and one of which is close to alex myself is illinois you can have a rifle you can have a shotgun in illinois but if it's ever deemed to be a short barrel rifle or short barrel shotgun all of a sudden it becomes illegal to have in that state and that's just another one of those things where how does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, great point. The the ATF guidance for over tier, 10 years was that these firearms with these pistol stabilizing braces were still pistols and they were firearms that did not have to be registered and that you did not have to pay a $200 tax to possess. And uh, like you said, people relied on that guidance for uh, over a decade and purchased these items believing that they would not have to register them, that they would not have to pay the tax. And that's the that's the that's another point I want to highlight here is that not only do you have to pay the $200 tax, the biggest problem is that you have to register that firearm with the federal government. So, unlike most firearms which are not registered, that you do not have to register, uh, these NFA items have to be not only taxed but registered. So there's a, a record that you possess and own this firearm, which is, of course, the last thing we want as gun owners because registration is the uh, one of the last steps to confiscation. And that's, of course, the last one of the last steps to tyranny. So mm-hmm. that's, that's an important point here. And, and one of the things which, again, trips up honest law-abiding uh, citizens, NFA items except for suppressors, if you cross a state line, you have to report that to the ATF that you're moving across state lines. Now, I live in Ohio. You live in Indiana. They're both fairly large states, but 
I look out over the Ohio River. So I'm very close to Kentucky and not, you know, I'm within 20 minute drive of Indiana too. It's very common for me to go over to ranges in Indiana and maybe even down to Kentucky. So I would have to report if I moved an NFA item, you know, to those states and just drove over there, shot it, and then came back. When you start looking at smaller states, you know, your Rhode Island, your Connecticut's, uh, Delaware, think what it would be like to transfer or to carry these items just to the range so you could enjoy uh, shooting your your own property. And that's where you start realizing just how screwy the NFA is when it comes to these uh, types of things where you have to go along, not only register, but then you have to go along and say, you know, mother, may I please go across the state line so I can actually shoot this. Yeah. Can can I just transport this item across state lines? And, and what business does the government have in knowing that? I mean, it's it's crazy. Uh, we've clearly gotten far beyond the, and this was adopted in 1934, I uh, remember. We've clearly gotten far beyond the enumerated powers that were included in the United States Constitution. Um, and I'm obviously our listeners are just listening to this podcast, but I'm sitting here holding a, a pocket constitution. And if you look at the powers that were given to the federal government, nowhere in there, uh, you, you'll find the power to tax, but where in the power to tax does that give the ATF the ability to know where you're transporting the item that they taxed? Uh, I don't agree with the tax, uh, number one, but I certainly going a step further, don't agree with their ability to control where you possess or transport that item. Mm-hmm. Yep. So besides uh, short barrel rifles, we also have short barrel shotguns, which again, those are ones that are under 26 inches and have a barrel less than, um, what, what is it? 18 inches. Yep. Yeah. So yep. we, we have to have an inch and a half longer on a, on a shotgun than we do on a rifle. So go figure that. <laughs> yeah. It seems completely arbitrary. I don't know how they came up with, with 18 inches. Uh, there's some guidance. There's a, a handbook. Uh, there's an ATF National Firearms Act handbook, which is if you want to know what what it uh, what the ATF thinks the National Firearms Act says, you can go read that. It's 220 pages. Uh, it's like um, you know our rules for the government. I'm holding this pocket handbook here of the Constitution. Our rules for the government are this long, and if you you, know, you can't see it here, but it's just. Uh, just a few pages in this tiny handbook that fits in your pocket and their rules for us are 220 pages plus just for the NFA. Mm -hmm. uh, crazy. Yep. And then add to that all the memorandums of understanding and different things like that for it. And it gets even balloons even further. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that's uh, a firearm that, that kind of defies a lot of these things, a lot, Hopefully listeners know what a Mossberg shockwave or a Remington TAC-14 uh, looks like. Believe it or not, that's not a rifle and that's not a shotgun. Even though it shoots shot sh the 12 gauge shot shells, that's considered uh, AOW, uh, any other weapon. And that's kind of a weird category uh, of, uh, uh, you know, within the NFA because it's, if it doesn't fit anything else and it becomes a AOW and then that makes, okay, but it, does just the same thing as the other ones. Yeah, in an AOW, it sounds, I, th I think it sounds more broad than it is. AOW means any other weapon, uh, but AOWs are weapons or devices that can be concealed 
on the person and from which a shot can be discharged by the energy of an explosive. So um, that would be things like pins, cigarette lighters, knives, cane guns, umbrella guns, etc. Things that you don't really commonly see today. Uh, so that those are more specifically defined, but it's not any other weapon as the the name suggests. It's not as broad as the name suggests. Mm-hmm. Well, it's still kind of kind of uh, screwy how they categorize uh, some of those because uh, not a, not that a shockwave is uh, pleasant to shoot a whole lot, but it is fun to shoot, and that's just one of those things to where it's uh, AOW because it. Looks like a shotgun, shoots like a shotgun, but because it doesn't have that uh, shoulder stock to it, it doesn't qualify as a uh, shotgun. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then the the other one that we've mentioned but haven't really talked about is, of course, the, the suppressor, which is uh, obviously one of the more popular items on the list. I think short barrel rifles and suppressors are probably the two most popular NFA items um but one thing i want to point about point out about these well and i should say for those who don't know most i'm sure do but suppressors simply suppress the noise at the muzzle so uh, it helps reduce uh, the noise and of course when uh, donald trump was in his first term uh, there was this proposal called the hearing protection act which basically said hey listen these are almost never used in crime they serve a useful purpose. They reduce noise. They reduce the amount of nuisance uh, that's created by the the sound of firearms being shot, uh, especially in in outdoor ranges in the public. Uh, let's let's take these off the list of NFA items so that people can get them more easily and and people can shoot in a way that's less of a, a disturbance, and that you can shoot without having hearing protection on in, in lots of cases. Uh, these are commonly possessed and used in Europe. Why on earth can't they be uh, easily obtained and used here? Unfortunately, that legislation, the Hearing Protection Act, didn't get anywhere. Um, I'm hopeful that it it could if we get a, a Republican president again in, in 2024, but um, obviously I'm not terribly optimistic given the performance of uh, the Republican president along with the Republican legislature from 2016 to 2018. Yep, definitely. And uh, one thing I would say as a shooter and also as a hunter, uh, having a suppressor makes a, makes a big difference because uh, hearing is one of those things that you don't get back. You know, just by hearing loud noises doesn't make you he your hearing better. You know, we, you know, if you if you're bench pressing, you bench press heavier uh, amounts, it makes you stronger. Well, hearing if you hear a loud noise, it damages your hearing, and those are that's one of those things where, uh, quite honestly, the reason why I have my suppressor is for hunting purposes and for you know shooting, so I don't have to worry about injuring my ears further than what I have already, and that's where. I'm very supportive of the Hearing Protection Act because not only for myself, but for the next generation so they don't lose it. And you were talking about, you know, the suppressors are very common over in Europe. Common from the standpoint of you can just walk into a gun store and purchase them because they're considered, if you're not using a, a suppressor and reducing your noise, it's not considered polite. And, you know, that's just, you know, one of those differences between, you know, Europe, Europe has its own kind of gun, gun culture over there. 
and it's not as big as what we have in the United States, but they also look at things and, and not making a big noise is considered much more polite than going along and making a big kaboom. And we've probably all been at the shooting range to where somebody in the bay next to us is shooting an AR and we're shooting a pistol and we know how loud that is. Think about if you took that down about 50 decibels with the uh, suppressor, it would make shooting at the range quite a bit nicer. And that's, that's uh, all it comes down to. They're not, they're not, they don't work like James Bonds where you just hear the, it, you still hear the bang. You just don't hear the kaboom behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Really they're, they're suppressors, not really silencers uh, in, as a practical matter. Because, uh, like you said, they don't silence the firearm; they suppress the amount of noise that it that it produces. Uh, and and like you said, hunting is a great uh, use case—not just shooting on a public range, but also when you're out hunting. Because oftentimes you're uh, taking a deer or, or another animal early in the morning, and and if uh, fortunately most people are not hunting close to uh, residential property, but uh, if you are. Of course, it's going to be less of a disturbance to those people that are nearby. So uh, hunting is a, is another great, great use case, like you mentioned, Rob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's all, you know, part of the uh, ability to, uh, you know, bear arms is I can go out and I can go hunting, hunting if I want to. In fact, there are certain models of pistols and some rifles that have integrated suppressors in the barrel. So on mine, I've got an extra six inches on the end of the, my barrel when I have when I screw the suppressor on. If I had an integral suppressed barrel, it would be the same length, but it would be just a little bit uh, larger in diameter for it, which again would make make it easier to shoot and, and more silent to be able to go along and uh, and utilize. Yeah, exactly. And one other thing I'd like to mention here too, Rob, is that a common misconception people have you know you, if you purchase an nfa item you purchase the tax stamp the atf sends you the the tax stamp you're not giving up your right to be free from unreasonable search or seizure you're not giving up the protections that you have under the fourth amendment by having an nfa item the, the atf the federal government still has no business searching your property they have no right to see the nfa item that you possess but you have to be able to produce the tax stamp when they ask for it. So that's that's the key here is that uh, you have to be able to produce the tax stamp. You're not giving up the right to be free from unreasonable search or seizure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I go hunting, I've got my hunting license, I got my permission slip, my deer tags, and I've got a piece of paper with the copy of the tax stamp on it. So in case I get stopped, I can show them all the paperwork because that's one of those things where they might asked to you know see it and i've got to have that on me if i'm in possession of an fa item yeah yeah that's a great great way to do it yeah but it's a hassle and one of those things to uh uh just you know never been stopped or asked for it but at the same time if i ever am i want to make sure if i limit how much time i'm i'm out of the field not actually hunting uh with, with something along those lines, because you never know when you get, you get stopped going, going a little bit too fast or rolling through a stop sign or just get stopped uh, by the game warden going, th- going through the woods. Uh, they've all got uh, their jobs to do and want to make sure that they can do their job and allow me to move on and do what I want to do uh, yep. quickly. Uh, well, Hey, uh, Alex, we, we talked about the 19, 
34 uh, National Firearm Act. For Do you want to touch a little bit on the uh, Gun Control Act of 1968? Uh, as, yeah. As we, yeah, I, I, I can do that. So, Because um, that kind of adds to the NFA and where, where we are today with, with certain things, too. Yeah, so so we we had the gun control. Uh, I'm sorry, the National Firearms Act of 1934, and then uh, subsequently, uh, of course, about 34 years later, we had the Gun Control Act, often called the GCA of 1968, which is a subsequent federal firearms uh, regulation. And of course, this was signed into law by Lyndon B. Johnson uh, in 1968, and is often referred to as Title I of the U.S. Federal Firearms Law. Um, and both of these laws, by the way, the National Firearms Act and the Gun Control Act, and this is part of what's that issue in, in the courts today, uh, is that both of these are enforced by the ATF. And the ATF is, of course, an executive branch agency it's an administrative agency and that's one of these uh, you talk a lot we talk a lot about uh in the second amendment news uh basically administrative agencies that are out of control the administrative state and this is part of the issue right is that the, the atf is tasked with enforcing uh the gun control act of 1968 in addition to the, the national firearms act of 1934 and they've basically got free range uh, from the executive branch from President Biden to interpret these laws as broadly as they can get away with. And uh, so they've basically gone gone rogue to some degree in, uh, in enforcing these. But the Gun Control Act of 1968 gives us, among other things, the list of prohibited people that we often talk about. Um, so we we talk about like the Rahimi case that's been recently before the Supreme Court, 18 U.S.C. 922 G8, which prohibits somebody who's a, been, uh, the subject of a domestic violence restraining order, prohibits that person from uh, possessing a firearm. The Gun Control Act of 1968 gives us that list of prohibited persons, for instance. Um, and of course, on the heels of the Gun Control Act of 1968, we also had uh, the, I'm blanking on the name now, but the uh, 1986, um, can you help me out here, Rob? I'm, I'm, I'm blanking yeah, on the name of it. Um, Firearm Owners Protection Act. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, FOPA. <laughs> that's how I always remember it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and FOPA... Uh, there were various permutations of it, um, but it was meant to, uh, it was kind of a compromise, and obviously the NRA was at the uh, table for lots of these negotiations, um, but it basically had a lot of impact on FFLs, and uh, so there was a huge, um, there was a huge debate about uh this 1986 law on the heels of the 1968 uh, gun control act. So um, these all build on each other, but the, and we can get into more detail if you want, Rob, but the gist of it is that the 1968 and the 1986 FOPA 
uh, were built on top of the 1934 National Firearms Act. And the National Firearms Act is what sets the stage for this later federal legislation. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it has a lot of uh, impacts from when it comes to classification of uh, firearms. And even one of the things in the, from the 1968 that's kind of interesting is the importation of firearms. Because if somebody wants to go along and look up something real interesting, look up a Glock 24 or Glock 25. They are 380 uh, pistols, but they are not imported in the United States because they don't score high enough on the 1968 scoring system that was made up. So they're illegal to be imported into the country. And that just goes along and shows you just how arbitrary uh, things are. But we know today across Across the United States, there's plenty of 380 pistols that are bought and sold. In fact, Glock produces their own version of it down in uh, Smyrna, Georgia. There are 42, and they can sell it without any problem at all. But they can't import the 24s and 25s. Again, I can't. I can't justify why, but it just goes along and shows you just how kind of how arbitrary things are and how these uh, rules have been been applied. Uh, across across the board, in some cases, that have made uh, honest people into uh, criminals. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that uh, I think is important to understand about the 1986 uh, FOPA was that it included this this safe passage provision, um, which I'm sure people who have taken any firearms training have have heard of, or at least know maybe not know what it's called, but it basically says that as long as you're, it can lawfully possess the firearm where you are from and where you're going, that you can pass through a state that doesn't like recognize your uh, license to carry firearm, for instance. So the example that we would give here in Indiana was that if you were going from Indiana to Missouri and passing through Illinois, Illinois wouldn't recognize Indiana's license to carry firearm, but as long as you could possess and carry in Indiana, you could possess and carry in Missouri, you could pass through Illinois based on this safe passage provision. And that was one provision of the uh, Firearms Owners Protection Act of 1986. And then it also clarified some of these prohibited person categories that were created in 1968. Um, those are just some of the things that that those laws did. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, definitely. Those are... Uh Important things to know and, and understand. Uh, as we're getting toward the end here, one of the things I wanted you to go along and just talk real quick, whenever an NFA item transfers hands, you've got to pay the $200 tax stamp or whatever the tax stamp is at that time if they if they change that amount. Can you, can you talk uh, briefly about why uh, somebody w- might want to go along and set up a firearm trust to put their NFA items into? Sure. So uh, prior to 2016, it was advantageous to have a trust because you could bypass what was called uh, the Clio certification. So if you were purchasing an NFA item as an individual, you had to pay the $200 tax, uh, you had to get your fingerprints done, you had to submit photographs, and you had to get a Clio uh, Chief Law Enforcement Officer certification. And depending on where you lived, that could be difficult. And there were lots of chief law enforcement officers who were getting in the way of people uh, getting these NFA items. And so in 2016, 
they changed the rule, and it was rule, I think the final rule was 41F. Um, well, let me back up. So prior to 2016, if you had a trust, you did not have to get the fingerprints, uh, you didn't have to submit the photograph, and you didn't have to get, most importantly, the Clio certification if you bought the firearm as a trust. And a trust is basically, this is the simplest way to explain it, legal separation of title. So what that means is, and I'll just explain by example, if I own a car, I get the title to that car, and I own that car by myself. If I want to own that property in a trust, all that means is that I am separating the title. So I own part of it and somebody else owns part of it. So the title is separated between the two or more people, um, not just one person. So if you purchase one of these NFA items in a trust, you still had to pay the tax, but you didn't have to, most importantly, didn't have to get the Clio certification. Well, they changed that in 2016, so it wasn't as advantageous to have a trust, but they changed it from a Clio certification to a Clio notification. So even if you were an individual, you still had to uh, get the Clio notification. You no longer had to get the Clio certification, but they changed it so that the trust had to get the Clio notification as well, as well as submit fingerprints and picture for all the members of the trust, all the owners or trustees within the trust. Uh, so it wasn't as advantageous, but to your point, Rob, the reason it is still advantageous, even though it's not quite as advantageous, is that it splits title, right? It splits ownership of the items contained in the trust. If you own an NFA item, and this is the same whether you owned it prior to 2016 or after 2016, if you owned an NFA item as an individual, you were the only person who could possess that fire that that item. So if I wanted to transfer that item to somebody else, uh, they had to pay a tax. Every time it's transferred, they had to pay a tax, and they could not possess the item. But if you owned it as a trust and you had this split title, whoever was a member of that trust or a trustee within that trust could possess that item. So, for instance, I've got a brother, a father, an uncle, lots of people, and we were all members of a trust, and we can share ownership of item NFA items within that trust. So that's the the big advantage to a trust. Um, we still have to, if we want to purchase new items, have to go through the fingerprint, picture, Clio notification process, but we can share possession of those items. And that's something that should not be taken lightly because, for instance, if you're someone, you have an NFA item that you own individually and your wife is in the home, and she possesses that firearm without you present, she could be in big trouble if the ATF were to get uh, knowledge of that. Uh, talking about prison, huge fine, etc. So um, that's not something to be taken lightly. Even if the person, your wife or significant other, for instance, has no interest in that item and ever using it, uh, it, it would still be beneficial for lots of folks to have them as a member of the trust so that there wouldn't be any question about whether or not they could possess that item. So that's that's one of the big benefits. The other is that if you die, there's not as big of a problem transferring the item after your death because oftentimes 
it's difficult. There's this sort of limbo time between when you die and when your executor or your personal representative of your estate can take possession of or sell the NFA items because technically they can't possess those items until they've been appointed by the court to dispose of them. So uh, it also helps with uh, estate planning issues. So that's sort of the the short and sweet of it, but uh, I'm happy to talk about that more. If you want to do a separate episode on that, Rob, I'm happy to, to do that as well. Yeah, r- real good information. Uh, I hope our listeners have gotten a real good appreciation for what the NFA National Firearm Act is and what it isn't out there because you can get tripped up. Uh, there's many different court cases that you can look into where people have made innocent mistakes and are serving jail time now. At the same time, uh, there are ways of going along and enjoying your freedom uh, with NFA items as long as you're aware of the rules and regulations of what's allowed and what's uh, what's not allowed for. But again, you've got to be knowledgeable about your rights and responsibilities in order to exercise them properly. Yeah, yeah, great. Perfectly said. I think it's a, an area with lots of pitfalls, but but an area that people can navigate if they just do a little bit of homework. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say on that is keep one thing in mind: no matter what you think about um, where we are with all the proposed legislations and different things like that, just remember what we talked about originally: uh, the criminals are not impacted by the law. So you can pass all the laws you want, making things illegal. Tell me how you're going to go along, make criminals legal, because that's that'll if you could do that, uh, you've got a winner on your hands. And so far, I don't think any government's been able to go along and make criminals uh, honest people. uh, Yeah. Yet in society. Yeah. Well, hey, Alex, uh, in season six, we've been asking all our guests uh, what they want to remember for when they pass away. What what would you like to be? So uh, one thing that I when I started the Forge of Freedom that I used to include in my intro, and, and I may go back to this, is that it was there was this quote uh, from Ronald Reagan that said that freedom is not something that's passed on in the bloodstream. And it, it, the idea was that it's something that has to be fought for. It has to be one generation after generation. And it's something that, and that's part of what the idea behind the Forge of Freedom is that freedom is something that takes continuous effort and continuous vigilance. And I want uh, my family, my my children to remember, my grandchildren to remember that uh, I did not rest on uh, the comfort of the freedoms that I had, that I fought for freedom, that I fought for, for a better world so that they could enjoy the same freedoms that I did and, and hopefully more freedom. So, so that's really mostly what I want to be remembered for. But um, I also want to be remembered, obviously, for for the way that I treat other people. I hope that people remembered that that not only was I uh, vigilant in maintaining and, and preserving freedom, but that uh, I was kind and, and generous to other people as well. So um, I want to be remembered for those things for sure. Very good. That's uh, great. Well, Alex, where can people find classes that you're teaching and your podcast? So the podcast is available. Uh, on YouTube, Rumble, Facebook, and most podcast streaming platforms, uh, you can find it by searching for the Forge of Freedom. I'm also on Twitter at Forge of Freedom, and we have a website, forgeoffreedom.com, where I post all of our 
our podcast episodes along with some blog posts and our training calendar. We haven't uh, released, it's almost the end of 2023 now, we haven't released a, a training schedule for 2024 yet, but we should have that up here shortly. We typically teach uh, a handful of firearms classes each year, as well as a five-hour uh, law of self-defense class, which we call Legal Concepts for Concealed Carry and Self-Defense with a Firearm, uh, which is basically about what we believe are the essentials that people should know about the lawful use of force and self-defense. And we'll have that that schedule up on our website at forgeoffreedom.com. Great. And I will include those links in the show notes for those that want to look at them. And again, uh, go out, become knowledgeable, and uh, exercise your rights. So, Alex, thank you for your time tonight. Always uh, great having your expertise on these subject matters. And maybe we'll do another one in the near future about trust to go along and uh, make sure our instructors kind of understand. Because as instructors, we're there when people are looking for answers and want to use this podcast to get people answers so they can be a little bit more educated and helping out you know the good american citizens exercising their rights rob i appreciate the invitation it was great chatting with you and always happy to come back thank you have a good night that's a wrap for this episode and i hope you learned something from alex and his definition and explanation about what the national firearm act nfa is and what it is not because if, uh, if you don't need it for your own information, I'm sure you'll have students that'll be asking for it. We want to make sure you know what those different terms are and also making sure where you can refer your students to for more information that they've got specific information to find out. If you're searching for information, check out our, our website at www.firemtrainerpodcast.com and hit the search bar up in the upper right-hand corner. All our episodes, our 200 plus episodes are out there and you can search them and find things for helping your marketing, helping your search engine optimization, even starting your business. If you have questions about the show, suggestions for the show, you can reach me at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Visit our sponsors, especially the Farm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Establishing your business was your first step. Your next step should be making sure you have coverage both for yourself and for your students with FTA. And remember, use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe out there, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.